Hello and welcome to the Pilgrim Way. My name is Norman Graham. I'm a minister in the Baptist Union of Churches in Scotland. The aim of these signposts is to try to help connect the text of the Bible with our everyday lives. Welcome to our series on uh, a quick whistle-stop tour through the Bible from start to finish. I'm going to be looking at uh, Genesis chapters 12 through to 22 uh, today, just uh, highlighting a few key uh, aspects of those passages. And uh, so I'm just going to read a few verses um, from Genesis 12 uh, verses 1 to 9. The Lord had said to Abraham, Go from your country, your people and your father's household to the land I will show you. I will make you into a great nation and I will bless you. I will make your name great and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and whoever curses you I will curse and all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. So Abram went as, as the Lord had told him and Lot went with him. Abram was 75 years old when he set out from Haran. He took his wife Sarah, his nephew Lot and all the possessions they had accumulated and the people that they had acquired in Haran. And they set out for the land of Canaan and they arrived there. Abram travelled through the land as far as the site of the great tree of Morah at Shechem. At that time the Canaanites were in the land. The Lord appeared to Abram and said, To your offspring I will give this land. So he built an altar there to the Lord who had appeared to him. From there he went on towards the hills east of Bethel and pitched his tent with Bethel on the west and I on the east. There he built an altar to the Lord and called on the name of the Lord. Then Abram set out and continued toward the Negev. Well, in these verses we see that uh, God gives a promise to Abraham. Now, Abram appears on the scene of human history really quite suddenly. Uh, although he's named in the genealogy that closes Genesis chapter 11, we're not told anything about his character or any of the events of his life prior to this moment. He's just one name on a list of names until the opening verse of Genesis 12. To say that Abram is one of the most important figures in the whole of human history would in no way be an exaggeration. He is the father of the Jewish and Arab peoples and a crucial figure within Christianity. Without Abram there is no Israel and without Israel there is no Jesus. For the story of redemption told in and by the church is the ongoing story of the people of Israel. Yet from the opening line of Genesis 12, we can surmise that Abram was a man who was concerned about knowing and doing the will of God, and that he was used to listening to God's voice, for Genesis 12 begins with that statement, the Lord had said to Abram, which implies that Abram and God had prior conversations. Uh, Abram recognised the voice of the Lord, which in turn implies a prior relationship. That relationship is further implied by Abram's willingness uh, to obey God. And so with nothing more than a promise from God to bless and protect him, he takes his family, his servants and all his goods and he left his family home to journey by an unknown road to an unknown land with no idea of what would happen along the way when he got there. We often miss the enormity of the risk that Abram took. 
missiologist Michael Frost and Alan Hirsch point out that at the very least it dislocated him from his land, severed him from the familiar comfort of kith and kin and resulted in a dangerous lifelong journey that involved what can only be called an open-ended adventure and discovery. It was a leap of faith to be sure but it also led to a life of faithfulness that has set the parameters of how we as God's people ought to understand what it is to live a life pleasing to God. Abram's obedient response is certainly an example to uh, believers today, all the more because it goes against the grain of what comes naturally to us. I would want to know what was in the land that I was to go to, how I was going to get there, what might happen along the way. I'd be looking for some sort of assurances. I mean, you don't just, uh, you know, fly to Spain or somewhere um, on the hopes that you might find a hotel when you get there. You want to book it beforehand. Um, and I think I would also want to know why God wanted me to go there in the first place. Of course, if you get all your questions answered before you step out, then there is no real step of faith happening at all. There's no need for faith if all your questions are answered. Biblical faith is acting on what God has said, often with nothing more than the conviction that God has said it. Or as the writer to the Hebrews puts it, faith is being sure of what we hope for and certain of what we do not see. I'm often asked what it was that led me to become a minister and it's very difficult to answer that question because there's a, things that really made sense to me, that a sense of call from God uh, that I had uh, and I was so sure about it but it was really hard to explain that and put that into words in ways that other people would understand. But Abraham knew God and he knew that God was speaking to him and he was obedient. But then later in his story, in Genesis 12 and again in Genesis 16, we find the promise of God it comes under threat. Um, now, some people might be surprised to discover how realistically true to life the Bible actually is. It never presents the heroes of its story as superhuman uh, or perfect characters, even heroes, uh, people who are so important in the way that Abram uh, is and was. Despite Abram's status in the history of faith, he remains a very imperfect and flawed character. And almost as soon as he receives this tremendous promise from God, his own actions then threaten that promise. It seems that Sarah was very beautiful and Abram was worried that someone would kill him and then take Sarah for themselves. He was so beautiful, he worried about getting bumped off uh, so that someone could steal her. And so he concocted a, a kind of really bizarre plan to protect himself by getting Sarah to say that she was not, that she was his sister and not his wife. And uh, we should note at this point in the story, uh, Abram went to Egypt on his own initiative rather than by the command of God. I don't want to read too much into that, that story, but it's interesting that when we do go our own way rather than God's, the consequences are never good. Uh, and of course, it's uh, Pharaoh saw Sarah, she was beautiful, and he took her to be his wife uh, or, or concubine or some in some sort of way, took her into the, the palace. Uh, and then God brings judgment upon the household uh, of of Pharaoh um, for that. Um, you know, it, it's it's a strange 
that Abram was willing to trust God to take him to a foreign land, but he wasn't willing to trust him for food during a famine, which was the, the reason that he went to Egypt. But both the going to Egypt and Abram's deception uh, highlight the flawed nature of his character. And the thing is, Abram didn't just use the she's not my wife, she's my sister deception once. He did it twice. He did it again. And we read about that in, in uh, Genesis 16. And I think, actually, we should be quite encouraged by Abram's flawed nature. I think too often we become paralysed by our own failures and feelings. We are trapped into thinking that God can never use us because we're not good enough. God would never use me to do anything for the kingdom of God because I did that thing and I messed up in that way. Well, the thing about Abram, who is really a pattern, a model of faith for us, is that he was at best inconsistent in his behaviour and at worst at times downright unfaithful to God. And yet God still chose him. God still used him to bless the world. He still kept his promises despite Abram's inconsistency and unfaithfulness. And so too God will keep his promises to us despite our inconsistency and our unfaithfulness. I think one of the problems for believers today is that though his promises are great and precious, as, as Peter says, God doesn't work to our timetable to fulfilling them. And that was certainly an issue for Abram and Sarah. Childlessness was a, a great source of shame in the ancient world. It was made all the more painful for Abram and Sarah because God had promised them a child. And yet the years went by. No child was forthcoming. So much time went by that God had to repeat the promise in response to Abram's doubt-filled questions. But then, in an attempt to assist God in fulfilling his promise, Sarah gave her maid to Abram so that she could get pregnant as a surrogate. And the end result was disastrous. For the child born was not the child that God had promised to Abram. And when Isaac was finally born to Sarah, the enmity between her and her maid almost caused the death of her maid Hagar and her child. But God always keeps his promises. And he promised that Abram's children would be a blessing to the whole world. And so God rescued Hagar and Ishmael, her son. But the enmity between these two children of Abram exists even today, for Isaac became the father of Israel and Ishmael became the father of the Arab peoples. The problems that we see in the Middle East today, the hatred between Arabs and Jews, is so strong and so irreconcilable because it's basically a family blood feud. One sin can have far-reaching and wide-ranging consequences. Trying to force God's hand or make his promises come true in our own timescale and in a way desirable to us always has disastrous consequences. And yeah, it can be very difficult waiting for God to fulfil his promises. But God's people are often called to wait longer than they would wish. And so the psalmist cry out again and again, How long, O Lord? God's wisdom is beyond ours and he doesn't work to our timetable and actually we find more peace in accepting God's timetable and working to his timetable 
in trying to force him to act on our behalf. In Genesis 15 and 17, we see the promise of God to Abraham being renewed. It must have been a, a very painful experience for Abraham and Sarah to wait all those years for God to keep his promise. And we can sense something of the strain of it in the opening verses of Genesis 15. In a conversation with God, Abraham kind of politely reminds God that as yet he has no heir and by implication he's reminding God that God has not yet kept his promise to make him a great nation. After all, how can God make him a great nation if he can't even have the son of promise? And by this time, Abram was getting on, as was Sarah. God's response is not simply to remind Abram of his promise, but to renew and reaffirm that promise by providing greater detail of what it will mean for Abram. Firstly, God assures him that his relative, Eliezer of Damascus, will not inherit Abram's goods. Rather, his inheritance will go to his own son. God then takes him outside and shows him the stars and says, look, if you can count the stars, that's how many descendants you're going to have, Abram. God is graciously giving Abram an illustration which will remind him of his promise every night. Every time you looked up to the night sky and saw the stars, he would be reminded of that promise that his descendants would be as numerous. Now, from a human perspective, Abram's probably hoping that God would have said, you know, Abram, you're right. I'm sorry, I kind of got sidetracked. Tell you what, let's, uh, we'll get Sarah pregnant today and your son will be born later this year. How's that? Yet God never gives him that kind of assurance. He simply restates the promise with a visual illustration, none of which gives Abram a timescale for its fulfilment. He calls him to continue to trust in God and in the word of God. In chapter 15, verse 6, we are told that Abram believed God and that it was credited to him as righteousness. One of the difficulties in understanding this text is getting a handle exact on exactly what it was that Abram believed. Was it God's promise to be his shield or and very great reward? Was it the promise of many descendants, the promise of prosperity, or all of the above? Fortunately, this verse is repeated three other times in the Bible, in Romans 4 and 3, Galatians 3 and 6, and in James 2 and 23. And it's the quotation in Galatians and the surrounding context which helps us to understand it. In Galatians, the Apostle Paul deals with an issue of how someone gets saved. Um, some people in, in the church were saying that all you had to do was, was believe in Jesus. Uh, others said you had to come to Christ and keep the laws of Moses. And Paul appeals to the case of Abram, who was acknowledged by all the Jews as the father and prototype of Israel. So how was Abram saved? How did he uh, come to know God? How was he uh, having faith in God? What does it mean? How was he justified and made right with God? Well, in answer, Paul quotes Genesis 15 verse 6. He was saved because he believed God. God justifies those whose faith is in him, who trust him and believe him, apart from any other external factor. Abram's faith was not in the law because at that time there was no law. It hadn't been written. 
nor was it in circumcision because at this time circumcision hadn't yet become the symbol of Jewish identity. The word used here in, in that verse in Genesis 15 and 6 doesn't refer merely to an intellectual belief, but one that is embodied in allegiance, loyalty and fidelity. To put it another way, Abram believed God by committing himself to living a life of allegiance to God that would be expressed in his words and actions. In the New Testament, we would speak of this in terms of discipleship, of having believing that Jesus is uh, the, the saving king and then committing your life to him as the saving king and living in accordance with his uh, commands and in obedience to his word. But then in Genesis 22, we see that the promise of God comes under a severe test. I mean, it's one thing to trust God when everything is going well. You've settled in a new land. The son that God had promised you had finally come. Your wife was happy to be a mother, to be rid of Hagar and Ishmael. Business was booming. Abraham, who by this time was well used to hearing the voice of God, must surely have been shocked at what he heard now from God. For in Genesis 22, God says, Take your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love, and go to the region of Moriah. Sacrifice him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains I will tell you about. Now, I can't decide which part of the story is more astonishing. The fact that God would ask this of Abram, or that Abram appears to be willing to obey God's commands immediately and without question. The only thing I can really come, uh, conclusion I can come to in trying to understand it is that Abraham had faith that even if he sacrificed Isaac, God had the power to resurrect him. In order to understand this strange event, we need to remember that the story of Abraham is only part of the ongoing story of redemption. We know that God's revelation of himself and his salvation was progressive and more was revealed with each successive generation. In the first 11 chapters of Genesis, God is revealed as the creator, that he creates that which is good. But he's also revealed to be holy in his response to that which is not good, to the sin of Adam and Eve. He's revealed to be loving in his promise of a remedy. In the story of Abraham, he's revealed as the God who keeps his promises, who is faithful despite our unfaithfulness. And he's also revealed as the God who loves us, who's willing to sacrifice himself in order to undo sin and its effects and bring us back into a right relationship with himself. So what we're meant to understand from the story of Abraham offering Isaac is that it's a picture of what God will do in the future to fulfil his promise to Adam and Eve and to restore creation. In Genesis 22, God withheld Abram's hand from killing Isaac, which had been hinted at in Abram's statement that God himself would provide a lamb. And of course that day there was a ram in the thicket that was sacrificed in place of Isaac. But that was uh, a signpost, if you like. God did provide a lamb, but also signposted to the future when another lamb would be sacrificed for us. Like the promise of a son to Abraham, the promise of God's son would be restated and repeated in the centuries that would follow. 
It would ring most clearly in the words of the prophet Isaiah. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him. And by his wounds we are healed. We all like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to our own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. What Abraham was asked to do, God has done in the person of Jesus, whom the Gospels describe as the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. When Jesus was on the cross, there was no voice from heaven saying stop. And so Jesus felt the full weight of the wrath of God, which humanity had stored up since the fall in the Garden of Eden, his judgment against sin. While some might read this story and see only a cruel and terrible God, it's this incident more than any other in the life of Abraham that shows the love of God for us. As a revelation of what God would do for us, it shows both the terribleness of sin and the mysterious, unexplainable, incomprehensible and wonderful love of God for us. That God so loved the world he gave his only son that whoever believes in him won't perish but have eternal life. He gave his son for you and for me. Thanks for listening.